0: Good morning. Well, I want to say it has been a privilege to be here. I have in, I have enjoyed you folks. I don't say that about every church. I want to introduce to you my better half, my wife, Sia. She's sitting down front, was able to be with me this morning, and so I'm grateful. Uh, For her to be here, you're grateful for her to be here. She works in conjunction with the Holy Spirit to make sure that I don't talk too long. She works in conjunction with the Holy Spirit to uh, make sure I don't talk too fast. And also works with the Holy Spirit in conjunction to make sure I don't say stupid things. And it doesn't always work. That was her comment. Uh, let me just say also to uh, members of the praise team, um, I have just really enjoyed you. And I'll tell you what, I, I've enjoyed your humbleness. I've enjoyed your, your leading us in worship. Um, I would say to our praise team many times um, at the church where I was at, I would say to them, listen, when you get up there, please don't look like you got up this morning and saw your name in the obituary. And then just put your clothes on and come on. And so I just appreciate you. It's, you're so welcoming, so inviting. I, I've enjoyed worshiping with you. Thank you so much for what you do. And just in getting to know some of you, you're just a warm, warm group of people. And I appreciate that. If you have your Bible, I would like you to turn to Psalm 46. But at the same time, put your finger there and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Psalm 46 and 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And uh, hopefully you got more than two fingers that you're able to do that. Before we get into Psalm 46, I just want to share something with you concerning the importance of psalms like this and the book of Psalms and really the, the Old Testament in general. I think uh, there's been a lot of disinterest in the Old Testament. matter of fact, a lot of statements recently that have come out from certain, certain evangelicals that we don't need the Old Testament. The Old Testament's not for the church, that, that uh, there's not as much value in the Old Testament. And I want you to see something here in First Corinthians chapter 10, and you'll see how this fits into uh, Psalm 46 as we get into it. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is rehearsing what the children of Israel went through in the wilderness as God brought them through the wilderness and their, some of their areas of disobedience. And so look what he says here, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 6. He says, Now these things took place, talking about the things he just talked about in verses 1 through 5. These things took place as examples for who? For us. Who's us? Well, he was talking, first of all, the Corinthian believers, but they were New Testament Christians. New Testament believers. That's us. These things took place as this gambles for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And then he goes on and lists some of the evil. He says, verse 7, Do not be idolaters as some of them. So we are to look back as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, rose up to play. Verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. And then he kind of bookends what he started with. In verse 6, he said, in verse 11, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. It says the same thing basically in Romans 15 verse 4. I won't have you turn there. But Romans 15 verse 4 says, for whatever was written in former days, that'd be the Old Testament. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures. What scriptures? got to remember they were paul was writing a third of the new testament it hadn't been collected yet it had been formulated together so when paul refers to the scriptures he's referring to the old testament and he is saying that through the encouragement of the scriptures through the encouragement of the old testament we new testament believers might have hope Listen, Christian friend, if the things in the Old Testament were written for us and we snub the Old Testament, we are missing some very, very vital truths in helping us live lives that are pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ. Same thing is true with the Psalms and particularly with this Psalm. This is a Psalm that tells us things, Psalm 46, tells us things that we need to know about God when trouble threatens our life and each section has a very important truth about God that we need to be reminded of section one was verses one through three that God is our harbor he's our refuge our strength our very present help in times of trouble and because of that therefore verse two we don't need to be afraid of anything Section 2 we looked at last week was verses 4 through 7. Each one of these sections are separated by the little word "sila," which means you need to stop right there and pause and reflect upon what was just said. And that is that in verses 4 through 7 that God is our help. He helps us because his presence with his, is with us. He helps us because his protection is over us. He helps us because his power is for us. He helps us because his promises are to us. Those are things that we looked at last week. So this morning, we want to just conclude this psalm. And I want us to look at the third and final section, verses 8 through 11, and the truth that this section gives us about God, once again, when trouble threatens our lives. And that is that God is our hope. So God is our harbor, God is our help, God is our hope. Let's read verses 8 through 11. Come and behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us the God of Jacob is our fortress. Now as we've gone through this psalm you can probably see where I got this outline you can probably see where I got that God is our harbor, harbor because in verse 1 you had God is our refuge okay. You can probably see where I got that God is our help because in verse 5 it says God will help her referring to Jerusalem but we saw how that related out to us. But as we read this passage, I know you're thinking to yourself, I didn't see the word hope in there at all. So I must be one of those preachers that just needs to have three H's, and that was the best way I could come up with an H, right? Was put hope. Well, I want you to know that hope is in here, and we'll see this as we get going through it. But I want to talk to you a little bit about hope. Because it's a very misunderstood concept, especially in the society in which we live. Matter of fact, I I distinguish between what I call American hope and biblical hope, okay? And I'm not one to have American hope. I want to be one who has biblical hope. American hope is wishful thinking. Wishful thinking. In other words, uh, I wish I had a new home. I wish I had a new car. I wish I had a million dollars. I wish I'd win the lottery. Of course you've got to play it to win it. Now that's not a promotion for you to go play it, OK? So all those things, American hope, is things that maybe we can, yeah, maybe we can get a million dollars. Yeah, maybe we'll buy a new car. maybe we'll have a new home. But a lot of these things will win the lottery. Yeah, I, yeah. Who knows? All right? It's wishful thinking. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is confident expectation. That's what hope means in the Bible. It's confident expectation. And hope in the Bible is always something future. It's always future. Matter of fact, you can call it future faith. They're linked together. Faith, hope, and love. Faith and hope. Faith has to do with right now. Hope has to do with the future. But it's future faith. Paul says this in Romans 8, verse 24. He said, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? I mean, if you see it, you don't have to hope for it anymore, right? That's the point. So hope, biblical hope, is the absolute confidence in the reality of what we are hoping for. In a sense, like I said, it's future faith. Let me give you an example of that. Let's take the second coming of Christ. Do you believe that Jesus is coming again? Okay, good. We believe that he's come back. Has he come back yet? No, obviously, you're still sitting here. If some of you say yes, we're in trouble, all right? Listen to what... Paul says in Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope. Our blessed hope is Christ. And when you think of the word hope, is it wishful thinking? Do we say that Jesus is coming back with a, well, I hope so. I, I kind of think he might. I'm not real sure, but, but, but I think possibly he could come back. Or do we say he's our blessed hope and that we have a confident expectation that someday Christ is going to return? That's how we should live our lives. So he says, waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Notice here that hope is future because we're still waiting for him. This hope is not wishful thinking. It is confident expectation because we know something that hasn't happened yet is going to happen. We're confident of that. We just don't know when. And that's why we wait and that's why we hope. Now, let's go back and relate this to Psalm 46. When we talk about hope, and especially as it relates here to Psalm 46... And God being our hope, what we're talking about is the confidence that we can have in God during difficult times in our life. The confidence that we can have in Him in difficult times in our life. Though we don't know the future. He not only knows it, get this now, He not only knows it, He has ordained it. I love this, Psalm 139 verse 16, look at it up here. The psalmist David is writing about God and he writes about his omnipresence. He writes about his omniscience, that he knows all things, that he's everywhere present. And then he says this in verse 16. He says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. By the way, that's where we get the English word embryo. So God saw and formed each one of us in our mother's womb. He knew us before we even began to be formed. He said, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. And that word formed in the ESV is a little weak. It literally means determined for me, ordained for me, when as yet... There were none of them. Or I love the way the New Living Translation says it. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. you realize that? you realize you, God knows every single day of your life because he's ordained every single day of your life. You're not leaving this life any sooner than he has planned. You're not leaving it any later. You know what? I don't know about you, but that gives me tremendous confidence in the way that I can live. I don't have to fear what's going on in our society. I don't have to fear threats. I don't have to fear those things because you know what? I'm not going to live a day longer than what God has ordained for me. He has laid out every day of my life, and there's a confidence that I can live with that. That doesn't mean that we're fatalistic. We can just go do what You know, well, let's just step in front of a train because if God wants me to die today, uh, God wants me to die today. I can guarantee you this. Matter of fact, let me give you some faith statement here. You step in front of a train, it was God's day for you to die. Okay, uh, there's probably no question about that. But God has ordained those things. You know, I, I, I love playing ball. Uh, I play ball. I don't play much ball. I'm not playing much of anything anymore. But, um, but I deal with those things. I do those things. I watch what I eat, all those things, not because, and I love to exercise. I do those things not because I think I can extend my life has nothing to do with that. I do those things because of the quality of life I want to have until the day God decides he wants to take me from this earth. It's more of the quality of life. I'm not doing anything about the quantity of my life. God has already determined that. And my hope is in him, you see. That's what this psalm is all about. So in this final section of Psalm 46... We deal with this hope, this confidence that we can have in God when problems and troubles especially come into our life, all right? And the psalmist gives us three areas now in which we can hope or have confidence in God. First of all, our hope is in what God has done. Our hope is in what God has done. Look at verse 8 and 9. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has, see that past tense word, how he has brought desolations on the earth, he makes wars cease to the end of the earth, he breaks the bow, shatters the spear, he burns the chariot with fire. Verses 8 and 9, here's an invitation to the Israelites, first of all, because it was written for them. It was an invitation with the Israelites to remember what they saw that morning when they looked over the wall and saw the defeated, destroyed dead bodies of the Assyrians. If this psalm was written because that Assyrian king Sennacherib had surrounded Jerusalem and was going to try to capture Jerusalem and God the night before sent one of his angels, just one, one angel, sent them and 185,000 soldiers were annihilated in one night and the next morning the Jews get up and they look over the wall and they see all these dead bodies laying there come behold the works of the Lord and he's inviting you I want you to reflect on that look, remember what you saw matter of fact the word behold come behold very strong word it means to fix the gaze upon to deeply contemplate to fix the mind on And that's what he's asking you and I to do, all right? It's not just the Israelites. He asked us to come and behold the works of the Lord. There's a backward look to hope, a backward look. In other words, though hope is future, there's still a backward part of it that's foundational. You know, I know a lot of us love to live in the past. A lot of us uh, live our lives with rearview mirrors, and a lot of our backward lives and our backward, backward looks are negative. They're filled with sorrow. They're filled with pain. They're filled with regret. They're filled with guilt. I'm not referring to living in the past, okay? Whether your past was good or bad, I'm not referring to living in the past. A matter of fact, the Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 13, he said, forgetting those things which are behind, right? Reach forward to those things that are before But there are times, Christian friend, there are times of looking back that build hope in us for what's current and what lies ahead of us. For instance, it's good for us to look back and to be reminded, isn't it, what we were saved from? It's good to look back and be reminded of things that God delivered us out of. It's good for us uh, to look back and see how God has provided for us in the past. It's good for us uh, to look back and see how he has forgiven us. Matter of fact, I love this in Psalm 103, and you don't have to turn there, but just look at it up here. The psalmist kind of does this for us, and this is such a beautiful psalm in verses 1 through 3. He says this, bless the Lord, O my soul, or praise the Lord, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and do what? forget not in other words you gotta look back and not forget something here forget not keep reminding yourself of all his benefits look back and see what he has done for you well what has he done for us verse 3 he's forgiven all our sin look he could stop right there and that'd be enough wouldn't it He forgives all our sins. He heals all our diseases. He redeems our life from the pit. He crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. He satisfies uh, us with good so that our youth is renewed like the eagles. We go back and reflect on the things that God has done. Now, I know there's some of you maybe sitting here and you say, well, what if I don't see anything that God has done for me? I mean, maybe you're a new believer and you don't have a lot of experience yet walking with the Lord. Or maybe you're a Christian, uh, you've been a Christian for a while, but you haven't been walking with the Lord and you can't look back and there's not a lot of things you look back and reflect on that you see that is good. Well, that's why I introduced this sermon this morning the way I did with the Old Testament because that's why the Old Testament is so important for us because we can go back to the Old Testament and we can look at people like Abraham and we can look at people like Jacob and Moses and Job and Daniel and Joseph and on and on and on and we can see the things that God did for those who trusted in Him him. and since God is not partial he doesn't play favorites guess what if he did it for them he'll do it for us amen that's the value of that and so we can have hope in God because of what he's done even if it isn't in your life yet at this point you can go back and reflect on the things that He has done for others he'll do them in your life as well so our hope is in what God has done secondly Our hope is in what God can do. Our hope is in what God can do. Look at verse 10, very first part. Be still and know that I am God. You know the interesting thing here in verse 10? This is the only time in the entire psalm that God speaks. This is God speaking. Be still and know that I am God. It's an invitation. I think, first of all, it's an invitation to his enemies to lay down their arms and stop fighting against him. They should have done that before he sent the angel. In other words, acknowledging that he is a victorious God. Quit trying to fight against him. Quit trying to strive against him. But I think there's also a message for us in here as well. God is saying this, stop trying to win the battles yourself. Stop trying to find your own ways to deal with sorrow or trouble or suffering or pain or tribulation or whatever you may be going through. Cease striving and let me be who I am. That's what he's saying to us. And by the way, when he says be still or cease striving, he's not talking about this ridiculous saying. Uh, you've probably heard it. People used to say it years ago. It's been around for a long time. Let go and let God. That is the most ridiculous concept I've ever heard. If, if you see that on a bumper sticker, run into the guy. Okay? I mean, just... Do it with love, on I mean. <laughs> do it with love. That whole concept, let go and let God, is, it, it implies that we have no responsibility in our life. In other words, just get in your recliner, get back, and let God do everything, all right? The Bible knows of no such concept. You and I have a part to play in our spiritual growth and our development. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But in verse 13, he turns around and says this, for it is God who works in you. Well, now, which one is it? Is it me working out my own salvation or is it God who works in me? Yes. What do you mean yes? Yes to both. He says, well, if it's God, you just say, well, if it's God that's working in me, how can I work it out? I don't know. There's a lot of tensions in the Bible where they almost can appear contradictory, but they're not contradictory. Both things are true because God has declared them to be true. It is God who works in you both to will and to do of his own good purpose, but it is your responsibility also to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Same thing is true if you, if you read sometime over in Second Peter. In 2 Peter, uh, chapter, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, I love that. Just just been a month in 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, uh, Peter goes through all of the riches of salvation, everything we have, and he says his divine power, in verse 3, he says his divine power has given us everything we need for life and Godliness. You know what that means? We need nothing else. God has filled us with everything we need to live the way he wants us to live and be pleasing to him. He has already done that. But then he goes on in verse 5 and he says this, for this very reason, for this very reason, because God has already done all these things for you in salvation, because God has already given you all this stuff in salvation, but for this very reason, you add to your faith. You add to your faith virtue, add to your virtue knowledge, add to your knowledge self-control, add to your self-control steadfastness, and so on and so forth. Well, how can it be if God has given us everything that we need then what are we going to add to it? See, I I don't know. I just know that God plays a part. We play a part. So that's not what it means when it says be still and know that I am God. Our responsibility, man, matter of fact, is to be still and know that he is God. By the way, you say, well, why is it important to be still? Because it won't do you any good to not be. You know what I mean by that is simply this i found this to be true in my own life. I'm sure you found it to be true in yours. God is in the process every day of building faith in our lives. He's in the process every day, every day through the Holy Spirit and the Word of God of making us look more and more like Jesus. And the only way that He does that, now listen to this, the only way that He does that is that God many times will allow or puts us into situations we cannot handle. The truth of it is, if we could handle the situation, we wouldn't need faith, right? If we could handle the situation, we wouldn't need to be dependent upon God. So he puts us in situations many times that we cannot handle so that we learn that he can handle it and that all we need to do is trust him completely and depend upon him. That's what it means to be still and know that he is God. I think the Apostle Paul was a great example of this. He had to learn this. Can you imagine that? Hey, the Apostle Paul, I always think of the Apostle Paul as being as perfect of a Christian as you could possibly be without being perfect. But he had to learn this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and again, I, I won't have you turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10, and you can read up here with me. Look, look at what he says. He says, So to keep me from being too elated, that means too proud, too arrogant, Now, what in the world would Paul get proud and arrogant about? So to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, that's what he could have been proud about. Now, what that phrase means is simply this. Paul knew. Paul knew that what he received from God was divine instruction. In other words, when he wrote the epistle to the Romans, he knew that what he was giving to them was the very word of God. When he, when he wrote the epistle to the Galatians and to the Ephesians, he knew that what he was giving them was directly from God. It was divine revelation. He knew that. Now, I don't know if Paul knew that God was going to take all of the letters that he wrote and combine them together into a thing called the Bible along with the Old Testament. But he knew that what he was speaking to that church was exactly what God wanted him to say. They were the very words of God. So I know, listen, I can just tell you about me. I can tell you the thing I would struggle with, okay? If I knew, for instance, if I was speaking to you today and I didn't have a Bible here and all this and I just said, look, here's what God wants you to know and I just started rattling off to you things and, uh, and I just knew that these were words that just came from me, from God and they're divine, they're revelation, they're authoritative, you need to abide by them. I know the tendency in me would be to be a little puffed up say, look at me. God speaks to me. You listen to me, but I listen to God. And Paul says, to keep me from that, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. And then he says it again. Here's the purpose of the thorn, to keep me from being too elated or too proud. Now, let me tell you something about the thorn because I've heard a lot of teachings on the thorn. And the thorn, everybody said the thorn is from Satan, and the thorn is a demonic messenger, and, and, and it was Satan that wanted to do that. I want to tell you something, the thorn was from God. The thorn was not from Satan. the thorn was from God. because it, it said two things. makes you realize that. Number one, it says, "To keep me from being arrogant." When have you ever known Satan to try to keep you from being arrogant? When have you ever known Satan to try to make you be humble? Paul says, No, this was given me to keep me from being arrogant. That would be God's word. And then he says, It was given. A thorn was given to me. It wasn't forced upon me. It was given to me like a gift. That's what the word given means there. See, I believe that even the Apostle Paul, when the thorn first came upon him, but the Apostle Paul, whatever the thorn was, when it first came upon him, he didn't see it for what it was. He didn't understand it first. Matter of fact, I think the apostle Paul looked at it and he believed that thorn was a hindrance to him being effective as a minister of Christ. And so what did he do? Verse eight, he goes to prayer three times. And I'm not talking about little noontime prayers here. I'm talking about hardcore praying. Three times he says, I pleaded. I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. And here's the response he got. Verse nine, but he, Jesus said to me, My grace is sufficient for you for my power. That's, by the way, that's what grace is. Did you know that grace is the enabling power of God? My grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. And what's Paul's response once Jesus tells him this? He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my what? Strengths? My weaknesses. Why? Why? Well, then the power of Christ will rest upon me. Verse 10, for the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, or to put it in the vernacular of Psalm 46, trouble. Trouble. For when I am weak, then I am what? I'm strong. Not his strength. God's strength. God gave him something that was beyond his ability, beyond his strength to handle so he would learn how to hope and depend upon God alone. He says when I'm weak then I'm strong. You know what he's saying in Old Testament language? Here's what he's saying in Old Testament language. When I'm still I know the Lord. Be still and know that I am God. When I'm still I know the Lord, that he is God. Be still and know that I am God, the psalmist says is an invitation. It's just like verse 8. Come and behold the works of the Lord. It's an invitation to each of us who go through trouble and calamity and difficulty to stop trying to handle it, to stop trying to fix it. it, it's a, it, it he wants us to stop trying to control the trouble. Stop trying to deal with it ourselves and simply know and experience that He is God. Watch Him work. Watching work, you say, well, what, what can I do during those times? Pray. Pray. I know that goes against our very nature, doesn't it? The psalmist is saying your hope and your confidence cannot be in how you can deal with things, but your hope is in what God can do and is able to do. If God can heal you. God can free you, God can deliver you God can fix your marriage, God can fix your children God can fix the church God can can fix your situation at work that's very difficult but it must be a God thing our hope is in what God has done our hope is in what God can do so be still and find out and then thirdly our hope is in who God is look at verse 10 and 11 the middle of verse 10 God is still talking now. Remember, he started talking, be still and know that I am God. Now he continues to talk. He says, I will be. Circle that in your Bible. I will be. This is where hope comes from. I will be. It's future, but it's certain. He says, I'm not, not, not that, that, that I think I'm going to be. Not maybe I'm going to be. He says, I will be exalted among the nations, I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us the God of Jacob is our fortress. Three great truths that these final two verses gives us about God that gives us hope and confidence in him. Number 1 is this. Our God is the God of unchanging purpose. He's the God of unchanging purpose. Look at verse 10 in the middle. He says, "I will be exalted. I will be exalted among nations. I will be exalted in the earth." Can I say something to you this morning that I think we need to hear, especially with what our culture is going through and our society and our country and the world and all that stuff? I want you to know this. Listen to me. Everything in the world, everything that is going on in the world, everything that's going on in our country, everything that's going on in our state, everything that's going on in your city, everything that's going on in your community, everything that is going on right now is just the way God purposed it to go. There's no person, or persons, or authorities, or kings, or presidents, or kingdoms, or nations, or dictators that negate or alter anything that God has purposed. Listen to the testimony of Scripture. In Daniel chapter 4, we have a wicked king, Nebuchadnezzar. He was the king of the world at that time, Babylon. And Daniel served under him. And God had to drive Nebuchadnezzar. He was so arrogant, he built a 90-foot statue to himself. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. God had to drive him into the wilderness, make him like a beast for seven years. Do you know in Babylonian historical chronicles, there is no record of seven years of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. But we find it in Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4 talks about how God drove him out for seven years, made him a lunatic, made him a madman. And then all of a sudden, his reason returned to him. And what was the conclusion that Nebuchadnezzar came to him? Look at this in Daniel 4.35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. How many inhabitants? All. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he, God, does according to his will among the host of heaven. He's in control up there. And among the inhabitants of the earth, he's in control down here. And none, none can stay his hand. In other words, you can't say, we're going to stop you from doing that, God. We don't like that program. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? The psalmist said in Psalm 115, verse 3, he says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. The prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 14, 27, For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? These are rhetorical questions that demand the same answer. And the answer is nobody. Okay? Nobody. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? Nobody. His hand has stretched out, and who will turn it back? What's the answer? Nobody. Nobody. God is in charge of everything. Matter of fact, let me tell you this, he's not only in charge of everything, he's surprised by nothing. His purposes always prevail. Listen to what he said to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. God says this, Remember the former things of old, for I am the Lord, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. What does that mean? To God, they're both the same. He determines the things that are going to come that haven't come yet. He's already determined things that had come. So he declares the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all, all my purposes. As minute as this, verse 11, calling a bird. (laughs) God just says to a bird, come here. Calling a bird of prey from the east. The man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, I will bring it to pass, I have purposed, I will do it. I love these verses. You know what? We do not serve an impotent God. We serve a God who's in charge of everything. He will be exalted among the nations. He will be exalted in the earth. It's certain he even gave us this promise in Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 through 11 about Jesus. He said, therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know what he's saying? He is saying not only will the Christians say that, not only will a reconverted Israel say that, the demons will say that, the lost will Will say that the heathen will say that everybody will confess that everybody so who is he he's the god of unchanging purpose secondly he is the god of unquenchable power look at verse 11 the lord of hosts let's just stop right there now we looked at that last week so i'm not going to spend much time here as a matter of fact i can't i don't have much time left we talked about the lord of hosts right the one who reigns above all and over all. He controls all the angelic armies of heaven who carry out His will. To be the Lord of hosts simply means that He is to be the powerful ruler of the universe. And what's the significance of that for us? Here's the significance. Get this now. If God has all power and control over everything and everyone up there, and he has all power and all control over everything and everyone out there, then it means he also has all power and control over everything and everyone where? Down here. Down here. No person... No authority, no government, no nation, no situation, no trouble, no circumstance is stronger than he is. That's why his purpose, by the way, the reason his purpose is unchanging is because his power is unquenchable. He has the power to bring his purposes about and fulfill them. And not, you know even the good news? Not even Satan can stand against him. Job was a great example of that. I mean, when Satan wanted to attack Job, he had to go get God's permission to do that. He couldn't just bring an attack on Job. He had to get permission from God to be able to attack Job. And someday, beloved, let me tell you, someday it's going to be all over. Someday it's going to be all over for everyone who's ever opposed God. It's going to be all over for Satan. God will demonstrate the range and might of his unquenchable power when Jesus Christ returns. Revelation chapter 19. Let me read this passage for you. It's lengthy, but I I don't need to make comment. Just let me read it for you. I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. First time Jesus came, he came as a lamb. When he comes back the next time, he's coming back as a lion. First time he came, he came back in in humility. When he comes back the next time, he's coming back as a conqueror. He's coming back to make war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems, many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And he is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood. And the name to which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen. Hey, by the way, you know who that is? Us. We're with him where the, the church has been raptured I think 7 years before and we're with him and we're coming back with him it says the armies of a heaven arrayed in white fine linen white and pure were following him on white horses i'm not big on horses but i will be by then okay From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And then I saw, John says, I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come and gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captives and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, the world leader that will be leading at that time. And the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. I mean, this isn't even a battle. This isn't even a battle. Not me to fight. I thought maybe we'd get to fight. I thought maybe he'd give me a sword. Let me do some fighting. Okay? We don't even fight. He just speaks the word and everything's captured. The beast is captured. And with him, the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh wow amen that's a powerful God you say well wait a minute what about Satan well you have to wait a thousand more years after the millennium but then we read this in Revelation 20 verse 10 and the devil who had deceived them humanity was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever who is he, folks? He is the God of unquenchable power. The God of unchanging purpose, the God of unquenchable power, and then let me just close quickly with this. He's the God of unlimited presence. Unlimited presence. Verse 11, the last part, the Lord of hosts is with us. Those last three words, is with us. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23 when the angel was revealing to Joseph about Mary being pregnant with Christ, he quoted from Isaiah 7.14, he said this, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel." If you take the E-L off the end, that means God. E-L in the Bible is God, and Immanuel means with us, and if you put the two together, you have God with us, and that's exactly what the angel said that it meant. It means God with us. You know why you can have hope and confidence in God? Because God is always with you. He's always with you, even in the darkest and the hardest of times and trouble. Listen, Christian friend, hear me on this. Your hope, your hope in times of trouble isn't about getting out of it. Your hope in times of trouble isn't about just removing it. Your hope in times of trouble is that God is always with you, even in the midst of it. That he walks with you through it. Look at Isaiah 43 up here, verses 1 through 5. And I want you to notice the word through. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the water, not around the waters, not over the waters, but when you pass What? Through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. and The flames shall not overcome you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored. And I love you. I give men in return for you, people in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am what? I'm with you. Why does this bring us such great hope? Because not only is God with us, he's also in control of the trouble, right? He's able to remove the trouble anytime he wants to remove the trouble. And he's able to walk with us through the trouble. Your hope and your confidence can be in God because he's the God of presence. He's always with you. So our hope is in what God has done. Our hope is in what he can do. Our hope is in who he is. He is our hope. He's the only hope that you can have. But the most important question this morning, is He your hope? See, is He your hope? And if not, what do you have hope in? What do you put your hope in? God is your harbor. God is your help. God is your hope. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Why don't you stand with me? Thank you for your patience this morning. There was a lot here. And I knew I threw a lot of scripture at you, but I'll tell you something. I had a seminary professor tell me one time. He just said, I never forgot it. He said, when you preach, you use a lot of scripture. So when you screw up, they walk away with something. (laughs) Okay, so I hope you walked away with something this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we have had. In this three weeks, just look at this one psalm so relevant, so powerful, so pertinent to things that we see around us, things we're going through. I have no idea about the people sitting out here, Father. I don't know what's going on in their life. I don't don't know whether things are going good for them, whether things are, they're going through problems and trials and suffering and trouble. I, I have no idea, but you know. And you have promised to be our harbor. You have promised to be our help. You have promised to be our hope. So we thank you for the power of your word and the truths that it contains. And that we can bank our lives on these promises, Not, not disregarding the fact that they come from the Old Testament, Lord, because every word of God is pure. All scripture is breathed out by you, and it's profitable for us. So thank you for the time you've allowed me to be with these people. Thank you that I can call them brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray that you continue to bless them, direct their paths in all the th- ways that they uh, go about looking for a new pastor, looking for the new shepherd, the person who will lead them into the next season of harvest and ministry for this church. And we we'll give you praise and glory for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It has been a joy to be with you. I'll be back in a couple weeks, Lord willing, but uh, I had to take a break and go preach someplace else, I guess. (laughs) God bless you.